Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Code, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Cindy Thomas, Managing Director of RCL Co. Fund Advisors. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCL Co. has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I am talking to two stewards of capital for the California State Teachers Retirement System, CalSTRS, the largest teachers retirement system and the second largest pension fund in the nation at assets totaling almost $324 billion as of March 31st, 2022. Kirsty Jenkinson is the Investment Director for the Sustainable Investment and Stewardship Strategies, or SIST team, at CalSTRS and is responsible for managing over $10 billion in sustainably focused investment strategies across public and private assets, overseeing CalSTRS stewardship activities, including corporate engagement and proxy voting and outreach with the fund's stakeholders. Welcome, Kirsty. Hey, good to be with you today. Julie Donegan is a real estate portfolio manager at CalSTRS, leading the team responsible for residential assets, including development activity, acquisition, business plan execution, and real estate operating company ownership. The portfolio includes a focus on affordable housing, which we'll explore a bit later. Welcome to Julie. Thank you, Cindy. Glad to be here today. Kirsty, I'd love to explore a bit more about your background. Please tell us a bit about your journey and what brought you to the investments arena and Kelsters in particular. Sure, I'll kick off. I grew up and I worked in the UK, as you can probably tell from my accent, for the first 30 years. And then I moved to the US, first to Washington, DC, then to Chicago, and then to California. So I sort of been moving across the country. I think I was drawn originally, literally when I left university, to investment because I just love the dynamism of the markets. I love having a global perspective. I love having that sort of worldview. And that's what's always sort of steered me. Where I sort of ended up at Calsters is more, you know, my focus for my last sort of 15 years of my um, professional life has been on sustainable investment. And we'll get into that obviously later. But obviously at Calsters, it just felt like this was a great place to scale my focus and interest in than that. And the commitment that we have from our senior leadership team and our board to make this a success of a, a model and the mission of our teachers. Oh, and by the way, living in California as a sort of a, a Londoner, well, I, I can kind of cope with that as well. Yeah, no doubt. And so you talked a little bit about your journey and how you moved into sustainable investing. And I'm curious if we can't dive into that a little bit. And maybe you can touch on, too, how you define that and ESG as well. 
Yeah, I know it's a real kind of hot topic right now, but it's also a complicated topic. Lots of things I think are challenging because when you say sustainable investment or I do and somebody else says ESG, it means, unfortunately, sometimes a little bit of something different to each person. And so we have a bit of a definitional issue that creates a bit of confusion. But in my mind, it's always been really crystal clear that I see essentially if you're an investor, you've got to understand what's going on in the world around you and you've got to understand and look to the future. And I see and have seen for many years now that the big macroeconomic sort of shifts and and changes that we're witnessing in our world are very much linked to sustainability factors. You think about climate change and the need to reduce carbon emissions to sort of stabilize the climate. You think about inequality and the sort of the challenges that provides for us as a long-term investor thinking about economic development. And when you start to frame it like that and understand that the world is changing in a certain way and that if as an investor, we don't understand how those shifts are going to create risks and opportunities for us, then we're not going to be doing our job really well. So to me, it's always a lens for understanding the future and how to respond to it. But it's also an element, and I think this is important, it's the power of the markets to create change. And if we can mobilize them to create positive change whilst creating returns, this is not a kind of one against the other. This is a kind of and and, then I think we're going to be in a better place. And as a pension fund investor, that's what we're charged to do. So it feels very, 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 very aligned to me. So bringing it back to the math, this is really about risk and return and opportunity. Totally. Well, 100%. Yeah. And Julie, if we can turn to you, um, would love to hear a little bit about your personal professional journey as well and why real estate. Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting. I always joke with people that real estate found me quite literally. (laughs) I was finishing my degree and I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my career. And my family were state employees. And they said, you know what, you should take the entry-level analyst exam and just find your way in the state. So took the exam, kind of forgot all about it. And a little while later, this letter came in the mail from CalPERS and it said, we would like for you to apply for this position. And it was a real estate analyst in the investment office. And I thought, well, that's weird. Why are they reaching out to me to apply for this position? So I called my mom like, mom, do they do that? Do they send these letters? And she said, I've never heard of them sending a letter. You better apply for that position, young lady. So I went into the interview and they asked me, you know, do you have commercial real estate experience? And I said, look, I don't know anything about commercial real estate, but I can run your numbers any way you want. I've got Excel. So uh, I guess the short story is they hired me and I've been in real estate ever since. That's wonderful. I have a similar story where I actually say the same thing. I think it found me and I was just drawn to this idea that you can touch the investment itself and go and visit it. And a wonderful piece of it. Yep. Okay, great. Well, I would love to shift a bit over to ESG, again, environmental, social, and and governance. And as Kirstie mentioned, this is just a huge topic. And so, and we we don't have that much time, right? We could spend all day on it. Let's take two aspects that are especially relevant to real estate and, and focus our conversation there. So the first being the net zero pledges. And I know CalSTRS has a 2050 net zero pledge. And so we can walk through that. And then also the role of affordable housing within any sound real estate investment portfolio. 
before we go there, Kirsty, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your initiatives under the Sustainable Investment and Stewardship Strategies Group. So if you could define the goals of SIS and maybe walk through how those goals are integrated into each of the investment portfolios in the private markets. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So the way I think about the broad goals or mission of the CIS team, forgive me for using that, but it's just easier than saying it each time. Think about it in terms of how we allocate capital. So how do we allocate capital? How do we integrate sustainability factors into the decision-making, the investment process, and how we allocate capital? And also thinking about the positive, demonstrable environmental and social impacts as a result of how we allocate that capital. So that's how we think about our portfolio very sort of intentionally and very specifically. And that's about a sort of $10 billion slice of the total pie. And come back to sort of describing some examples of that. But the second piece is our role around how do we influence capital? You know, as you said in the introduction, Cindy, we're the second largest pension fund in the US. We believe that we have a responsibility to try and influence the future that we want to see when I sort of go back to creating that future that is more sustainable and that will ultimately benefit our retirees and the teachers that we look after. So my role I see very much is the allocation of capital and the influence of capital. And when I mean influencing capital, it's really how do we use our influence with the companies that we invest in, with the assets that we invest in, with the partners that we work through to sort of create more sustainable business practices and policies. We also have another angle, which is how do you change the rules of the road? How do you set the sort of the policy environment that will enable the kind of investments that we want to scale up that will create these impacts? So we do a lot of work with the SEC and with other regulatory bodies around the world and with general policymakers just around you know, make it possible for investors to be able to invest at scale in these areas. So that's how I think about it. You rightly, and I I, I like the way that you've sort of honed in on net zero pledge and affordable housing, because one of the things we realize as well, and Julie and I have talked a lot about this, is there's so many issues that we could think about when you apply a sort of a sustainability or an ESG lens. But in real estate, it, it really feels like It's that focus on what is climate change going to do to the underlying assets? What does it mean to sort of like, you know, those valuations going forward? And then how can we use affordable opportunities in affordable housing to think about addressing that as well? So the portfolio that I look after is is both public and private. We've been running the public assets for a while, investing in sort of more thematic strategies that really try and integrate environmental, social and governance issues, broad-based public equity strategies. They've been very, very resilient, particularly during the downturn. Again, sort of showing that you can create alpha by using this lens to select stocks. And then the build out of our private portfolio has just been a really fun new adventure for us, working with our real estate colleagues, private equity, and also infrastructure colleagues and trying to seek opportunities that will beat benchmarks. And I'll be really clear about this. This isn't concessionary. It's about we have to beat our underlying benchmark. That's why we're here. But at the same time, demonstrate these positive environmental and social impacts. Yeah. And just to underscore, I I agree with that. I think there have been a slew of academic studies today that really say this isn't concessionary, right? And we can generate alpha by focusing on be it net zero or affordable housing. And when I think about that, and I think about your stakeholders as well, you're doing positive community, I guess, work for them as well, you know, with affordable housing and net zero, those are things that affect their lives and their children's lives, while also generating a strong return for their investment portfolio. So it's twofold in that regard. 
Yeah. And Cindy, the thing there is, is how do you focus and ensure that you know, if we took our eye off the ball and we're not thinking about risk and return, that's where we start to lose our discipline as investors. And we have to think about it through that lens because there are a lot of people, as you say, our stakeholders who want us to do things and to fix problems and to solve issues. We want to try and play a positive role in the communities, but ultimately, if we can't filter it through the risk and return lens, we will lose our focus and that's not good for anybody. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so important. And if we can we can stay on that for a bit longer and maybe talk about how CalSTRS balances the mandate to generate returns, you know, in the short term, right? While staying true to the long-term missions and incorporating the negative impacts of climate change maybe into the decision-making process as well, which feel a bit longer term and still maintain that strong alpha in the short term as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, what we're back to my sort of original framing around what's happening in the world around us. What we're seeing when you think about climate is you're seeing the physical impacts of climate change. We're, we're witnessing them in a way that are much more tangible than they were even sort of five, 10 years ago. You know, you're witnessing that impact on, and I'm not just talking about sea level rise, which we recognize is, is happening, but will take longer. We're talking about extreme weather events and other factors as well. So actually having the physical impacts of climate change brings this a lot more sort of closer to sort of current investment horizons. And then the other area when you think about climate is around what's called sort of transition risk. This is policies, incentives, technology shifts are creating investment opportunities. The levelized cost of energy for renewables is now competitive with traditional energy sources. So we've seen these big pricing shifts that mean that things that maybe even five, 10 years ago were not as economic are now suddenly economic. And so we have to really understand and calibrate that it's not just now the future, it's also the short term. And we can also give examples when we talk a little bit about what we've been doing in affordable housing about, again, how do we see that there's this very clear nexus between opportunity and impact. So that's great. We have changes in technology that are happening very quickly. And then we have changes in attitudes happening pretty quickly around all of this. Kirsty, so so one last question before we move over to really focus on real estate. You've been a part of this world, the sustainability world, and in investing for a while. And I'm curious how you've seen the sentiment change over time. I mean, I feel like investors were really leading the charge for a long time, but that seems to be changing. I mean, even in the past, accelerating over the past couple of years. Yeah, really true. The consumer and the sort of individual interest is growing. Recognize it's not happening at the same pace everywhere, even across the US or across the globe. So we have to be sort of sensitive to, you know, this isn't just a wave that everybody's riding from a consumer side. You know, you have to be real to the politics and real to the challenges. But fundamentally, there has been a shift in consumer interest, a real shift, I think, in corporate behavior and a real shift in the partners that we're working with. One of the most exciting things I find is the professionalism that I've seen emerge and develop around ESG and sustainability. You know, this is no longer just a sort of a a small team of people who maybe don't have deep financial expertise sitting in one side of an investment organization. This is now happening at scale with people who have deep knowledge on sustainability, deep knowledge on financial and investment analysis, the data, the research, the analysis, the resources being committed to this is really different to when I was sort of looking at this 20 years ago. And that's That's a huge industry needs that and we need that to be successful. And I'm just so happy to see that. That's great. Yeah, me as well. (laughs) 
Julie, so let's talk about real estate specifically and the portfolio. Obviously, the built environment has a huge impact on climate change, and we're, we're investing in the built environment. 40% of global carbon dioxide emissions come from the real estate sector, 70 of which are produced by building operations, and the remaining 30% come from construction. So I'd love to dig in a little bit around the 2050 Net Zero Initiative at, at CalSTRS and understand how that's being rolled out within the real estate portfolio. Yeah, thank you, Cindy. And I just want to comment on on what Kirsty was speaking to a moment ago. You know, I've been in real estate for more than 20 years. And when I started, ESG was there, but it was more of a check the box exercise. I don't think there was really any intent or action behind really leaning in on ESG. And so we can talk about what we're doing in net zero, but I'm seeing it being in the forefront with a lot of our partners. They truly are doing the work to measure and monitor ESG across the portfolio. So I'm starting to see a shift in the institutional community, which is what we want. And hopefully with this net zero pledge, it's really just the beginning. But as you've described, real estate, it's a a mixed opportunity, right? It's the curse and the opportunity. We are providing, we have emissions that are happening, but by the same virtue, we can measure it. It's a little bit easier. We can look at a physical building and understand what energy is being consumed by that building. How is uh, water and waste being treated? So we can actually measure some of these inputs and then be able to analyze how can we improve it? So in some ways, I think real estate might have a a better opportunity to move quickly in terms of making changes because we do have a tangible way to measure what's happening at the asset itself. Um, When we look at the net zero pledge, it really is an aspirational goal. We recognize the properties in our portfolio today will not likely be in the portfolio in 2050. That being said, we can start to make those changes with how we acquire assets and perform due diligence so that we're making these small incremental changes to the portfolio today so that it becomes a mainstream part of the conversation. When we're meeting with our partners and we talk about ESG, it's as fluid as a discussion point as cap rates or interest rates. Let's look at the sea level rise. Let's look at temperature, all of the factors that go into whether or not these assets will continue to be in demand and part of an institutional portfolio. And then also looking at those transitional risks. Do we want to have 10 buildings in Florida where they may be impacted by sea level rise? But at the same time, you're still going to need an office building in Florida. You're going to need an industrial building and a retail center. So it's factoring it in and making it the forefront of the conversation, but realizing it's not going to mean red lines in certain markets. Yes, I I think it's clear today more than ever that climate risk is part of investment risk and that it should be viewed along those same lines and be integrated to all of the acquisition processes and the ongoing monitoring for, for each of our assets. And it sounds like what you're saying is progress really looks like it's slow and it's incremental, but it's happening. It's happening every day within the portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. Let's switch gears and speak a bit about affordable housing. I know that earlier this year, CalSTRS committed capital to the SOLA Impact Fund, an affordable and workforce housing strategy via a joint venture with Belay Investment Group. And Kirsty, 
I understand this was the first real estate investment within this portfolio. And can you speak to how that investment aligns with the SIS goals that we talked about earlier? Yes, absolutely. As I mentioned, we've been building out the private side of our portfolio. To date, we've made a a private equity investment, two private equity investments and a real estate investment. And I'm really happy that this was the first investment that we made in tandem with Julie and her team. And we both allocated to this fund not least because it really hit very squarely all of our goals, you know, again, to be able to create the returns that would enable us, we hope, to beat the benchmark, but is a very unique and interesting business model to develop affordable and workforce housing in South Central LA, which is, many of your listeners will know, is is one of the more challenging areas from a sort of a, you know, an economic development perspective. And so we were really delighted that this was the model that we'd hoped to structure working in practice. Julie and her team, there's I'd love her to sort of expand on, you know, they have the relationship with Belay. They have obviously the deep expertise and and the ability and understanding to underwrite opportunities, but were able to bring us in and say, we think this would be a great first investment that aligns with your portfolio. And from a Calster's perspective, it makes sense for us both to invest. So we can scale the amount that we're putting into it, but spread it between our different teams and, and bring our expertise together. But Julia, you were the one who came and said, I think I've got a really interesting opportunity. And it's like, you know, fabulous to hear from your side. Yeah, thank you, Kirsty. I mean, the, the Sola investment, I wish we could find, you know, 100 more of those and replicate it across the portfolio. It really is the model for doing well by doing good, which is the Sola credo in terms of how they are investing. There's many ways we look, can look at the Sola investment. First and foremost, they are a diverse and emerging manager. They're a minority-led team focused on South Central LA. And as Kirsty alluded to, this has been a market that's been predominantly overlooked by institutional capital. So one would think, well, how are they able to transact in this space where others haven't? First and foremost, they are a minority-led group. They have the trust of the community, and they are able to source and find transactions that others don't, quite frankly, because they're not operating in that community. They've built deep relationships and they are able to provide affordable housing. They are the largest Section 8 landlord in Los Angeles. So we're not shying away from Section 8, which is clearly capital A, affordable housing. We think it's a stable cash flow. There's much less turnover when you look at the real estate properties themselves. And because they're building these new properties where they haven't necessarily had new stock in a long time, these tenants are incredibly grateful for the quality of the product, the affordability of these units, and they take really good care of these assets. They see themselves as an extension of this team and they go out of the way to make sure there's no graffiti or destruction of the asset. And it just speaks to how well entrenched Sola is in their communities. That's great. If we can stick there, Julie, and maybe talk about, I know that Kelsters has a portfolio, residential portfolio today of somewhere around $9 billion. How does affordability fit into that portfolio today? And where do you see the returns going forward? Absolutely. And as Kirsty mentioned, this is not a concessionary investment. This is achieving a mid-teens return over a two times equity multiple. So it's not a concessionary affordable. But when we look at the residential portfolio overall, affordable housing is a key focus. I mean, first we look at the supply. The existing stock is being eroded on a daily basis. 
Uh, we have groups looking at these properties and acquiring them in a value add type of transaction. They'll go in and do some improvements. And because of the capital invested in those assets, they're no longer affordable, right? They have to raise the rents to match what they've done in terms of a value-add strategy, which is fine, but it's reducing the basket of properties that's available. And then when you look at the need, that's growing. I mean, just before COVID-19, roughly 37 million households in the U.S. were cost-burdened, meaning they were spending 30% of their gross income on housing, and an additional 18 million were spending over 50, 50% of their gross income on housing. So you have this phenomenon of a smaller and smaller basket of available properties trying to serve a growing need. So it's one of the things that we focus on quite clearly. And I believe we touched on it with the Sola investment. These affordable properties have stickier tenant base. It's an affordable rent for them. So they're not looking to move and get one month free rent in this brand new class A property that's going up down the street. They tend to be staying in their community. They take pride in living in these communities. And there's also governmental debt that's favorable when you look at acquiring affordable housing as well. So we think all of these attributes really underpin you know, a financial return in being able to focus on affordable housing. And within our program specifically, there's the full spectrum from capital A affordable, meaning there's government subsidies, section eight, we touched on that with the SOLA investment, to lowercase a. We have some partners that are acquiring existing affordable properties that have tax credits that may be expiring, and they will go ahead and put new capital into these properties and extend the income and the affordability for another 30 years. So they get additional tax credits. Those are resyndications. So there's another way that you can be in the affordable housing space and continue to provide, or in that case, sustain affordable housing in the portfolio. Well, interest in the area has only increased uh, from the institutional investor base. And it's just wonderful to see how Calsters is leading in this environment. So, Julie, you spoke a little earlier about Belay Investment Group and how they were a diverse and emerging manager. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about Calsters Emerging Manager Program. I understand that current managers represent about a half a billion of equity and graduated emerging managers represent almost $10 billion in, in equity. So can you expand a little bit on that program and tell us how bringing these diverse and emerging managers into the real estate portfolio really is maximizing risk-adjusted returns for the stakeholders? Yeah, so the Belay Investment Group has been a committed partner with Calsters for many years. We just celebrated a, a 15-year anniversary with Belay. And they have been our go-to partner for emerging and diverse managers. And the statistics you cite, almost 10 billion in graduated managers, that goes back over the entire 15 years. So it, it is a long time to get us to that 10 billion mark. It's also very important to note that we continue to lean in with the Belay Investment Group. We increased our allocation to Belay by an additional 350 million recently which brings our total capital commitment to Belay to just under $1 billion. And their mandate with us is to seek and find diverse and emerging managers. As I'm sure you can appreciate, 
when we're looking at smaller managers, CalSTRS, by virtue of the types of investments we do, we generally have to make bigger allocations. And we don't want to swamp a smaller first, second, or third time fund with the amount of capital that we would need to deploy. So that's really where Belay comes into the process. They're very active in finding these smaller funds, and we can make a $5, $10, 20000000 million investment. And in the case of Sola, each of us, real estate was $25 million, CIS was $25 million. So a $50 million investment from this program is quite meaningful. But when you look at the, the bigger real estate program itself, a $50 million investment is not really scalable. So that's how we access and provide scale specifically to emerging managers. But it's also really important to note that we just revised our definition as we look at diverse and emerging managers. Historically, an emerging manager definition had mostly been tilted toward a small cap or assets under management definition. And the emerging manager or diverse manager would generally look at 51, 51% or greater minority or diverse ownership. We've done some deep thinking and looking at these definitions and we've expanded that. So what I mean is we're going to parse emerging and diverse so that when we look at emerging, it really is still a small cap definition. If there is minority or diverse ownership, that's great. But by virtue of the size, that's one segment that can be served within this program. But then we're looking at the diverse managers as well. And as I mentioned, historically, most emerging manager programs focus on a definition of 51% or greater. And we felt like we were missing a big swath of that potential universe. And so we included a definition that is substantially diverse. So we're picking up minority or diverse ownership of these companies starting from 25% over 50%. And we think by virtue of expanding those definitions, we're going to reach a much bigger group. Yeah, so important to show the flexibility there in the definition, really opening up the universe when it's appropriate. Yeah. Well, thanks. We've learned a lot about your net zero initiative and affordable housing, how that all fits in the portfolio, how important it is to stay grounded in achieving the maximum level of risk-adjusted return for your stakeholders and all in the process. I'd love to just take a step back for a minute and think through just how both of you stay grounded in the work and where do you get your inspiration? I mean, these are big ideas and big issues that are being tackled. And how do you stay grounded and and where are you getting your inspiration, Kirsty? Sounds a bit cliche, but it's so true. I Mostly it's, it's from the team that we work in, the team within CIS, but also more broadly within our investment branch. I often feel that Kelsey's is not a danger of not feeling grounded because a colleague will certainly bring you back to earth pretty quickly or, or challenge or discuss. And, and we have that sort of trust and culture and that's really helpful. So the grounded piece, I hope we have in, in, in a lot of ways through our team. The bit on the inspiration is I'm just curious. I just like to learn and I like to understand these issues. I find them very, very the topics themselves inspire me. I just think we have a unique opportunity and a unique responsibility. And so that just motivates me every day. And being able to work and have access to great partners just feels a real position of privilege. I'm very grateful. Wonderful. How about you, Julie? You know, it's probably going to sound a little cliche, but I really think about the teachers every single day. There's been many teachers in my life. I have family members who are teachers and 
I just think about how hard they work in the classroom. I could certainly never do it. Hats off to teachers, especially during COVID, all the challenges that they've gone through. I feel like if I can just lean in on what I do every day and provide that secure retirement, I mean, that's what gets me up every day is making the teacher's retirement very secure. Wonderful. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you both so much for joining us on our podcast. This has been a wonderful conversation. It's been my pleasure to facilitate the discussion, and I look forward to continuing the dialogue and seeing what's next on the horizon for CalSTRS. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. Thanks, Cindy. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co., if you are interested in learning more about RCLCO, go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCLCO. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.